astounding. It was actually, it was beyond belief. These were first and only drafts of music. But they showed no corrections of any kind. Not one. He had simply written down music already finished in his head. Page after page of it, as if he were just taking dictation. And music, finished as no music is ever finished. Displace one note, and there would be diminishment. Displace one phrase, and the structure would fall. It was clear to me that sound I had heard in the Archbishop's palace had been no accident. Here again was the very voice of God. Hello and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. Today we're looking at the life of Mozart. Obviously, every movie I've discussed takes some level of creative license when translating their topic to film, but for whatever reason, Amadeus feels slightly different to me. In some ways, it's almost like Mozart fan fiction. Story takes priority over history, but there's still a lot of truth to it. So that said, I don't want to give any background yet or cut in during the narrative. I plan to just give you a rundown of the entire movie and deal with all the differences at the end. I do highly recommend you watch this movie first if you haven't seen it yet. It won the Oscar for Best Picture in 1984 and eight Oscars total. It's a 94% on Rotten Tomatoes and number 53 on AFI's list of top 100 movies of all time. It's nearly three-hour runtime flies by. It's easily one of the best films on my list for this project. We're not told the year at the start, but an old musician named Antonio Salieri begins to rant and cut himself. He's taken to an asylum for his own protection. In his ranting, he claims to have murdered Mozart. This is probably in the early 1820s based on Salieri's age and known death date of 1825. A priest is brought in to talk to Salieri, and the bulk of the movie is Salieri's flashbacks as he tells his story to the priest. We see a very young Mozart, maybe six years old, playing for kings and popes. Salieri was about six years older than Mozart, but Mozart's career started sooner. We see a young Salieri in the audience watching in awe of the prodigy that was Mozart. But Salieri's dad says Mozart is simply a trained monkey and scoffs at what he sees as a novelty act. But an adolescent Salieri pledges his life to worshiping God through the art of music. He wants nothing more than to create something similar to what he's heard from Mozart. As a young man, Salieri moves to Vienna and eventually becomes the court composer of Emperor Joseph II of the Holy Roman Empire. The emperor adores music, especially Salieri's, so everything is right with the world until Mozart comes to Vienna with his employer, the Archbishop of Salzburg. At first, Salieri is hopeful. He wants to meet this musical genius whom he last saw when they were both boys. He plays a game with himself, scanning the faces at the party to see if he can pick out Mozart from the crowd. 
With horror, he later realizes that Mozart is a loud, vulgar, insufferable young man chasing his girlfriend around the party. This actually rocks Salieri's world. He asks, why would God choose an obscene child to be his instrument? Mozart winds up staying in Vienna with the emperor commissioning work from him. He's familiar with Salieri's work, but there's this tension throughout the film where Salieri feels inferior about his own work, even though others praise it. And it's obvious to Salieri and us as the audience that Mozart thinks Salieri's stuff is amateurish. In their first meeting, the emperor plays a little piece Salieri wrote in honor of Mozart's visit, and Mozart immediately memorizes it and improves upon it. Salieri now believes God is mocking him. Why would God put in him the desire to praise God with music, then deny him the talent that he bestowed on Mozart? The bulk of the center of the film is extended music scenes, which are great, and Salieri and the other local musicians trying to secretly undermine Mozart in various ways. But at every turn, the emperor sides with Mozart, who just keeps winning. Though it does get to the point that Mozart's work is underappreciated and underperforms at the box office, due in part to Salieri's behind-the-scenes influence to cut their theatrical runs short. The irony is that Salieri is his biggest fan. It takes a musician here to truly understand the genius of everything Mozart does. He's pushing the envelope and doing new things for the time. Operas in German, more moving pieces and more people singing at once than any other composer could manage, and risque story locations. So, despite his artistic success, Mozart is broke. He spends wildly and works constantly, but isn't bringing in enough money. This was probably my third or fourth time watching Amadeus, and the biggest thing I've always taken from it is that Mozart was a rock star. We think of classical music as coming from this prim and proper age, but Mozart has more in common with what we might expect from a modern rock star. He's arrogant, a bit of a womanizer, bombastic, bad with money, has an adolescent sense of humor, he's an alcoholic, and his apartment's a mess. And the more Salieri realizes Mozart's genius, the more he begins to hate God. He thinks God is openly laughing at him through Mozart. Mozart himself undergoes an increasing amount of stress, first from his father visiting and then later dying, His wife leaves him along with their young son. He's still broke. Salieri plans a final attack. He wears a mask and goes to Mozart to commission a requiem mass. He knows Mozart can't afford to turn down the paying gig, and his plan is to somehow kill Mozart and then claim the requiem mass as his own work and play it at Mozart's funeral to kind of taunt God back. As the weeks go by and the stress mounts, Mozart neglects the Requiem in favor of more fun projects that aren't paying. He even says he thinks the writing of the Requiem is killing him. At a performance one night, Mozart passes out and Salieri escorts him home so he can rest. In this sickened state, Salieri tells Mozart that the mysterious man who commissioned the Requiem will pay him a bunch more if he can finish it by tomorrow. Mozart just needs to rest, but the money is too much to pass up. He asks for Salieri's help, who writes down the music as Mozart dictates it to him. And this is probably the best scene in the movie. It is the climax, I suppose. We truly see the full genius of Mozart. A fully formed orchestra is already complete in his head. Salieri can't even keep up. He already knew Mozart was a genius and is still in just utter awe of him. They make a lot of progress and then pass out until morning. Mozart's wife returns and a sick, groggy Mozart greets her. 
She's mad Salieri is there and wants him to go, but he insists on staying to help Mozart finish the work. They bicker back and forth for a bit, but it's soon for naught as they realize Mozart has died. So back in the asylum, old Salieri laughs at God and the priest. Regarding the unfinished requiem, he tells the priest, Your God killed Mozart rather than share his gift in the smallest degree with someone mediocre. Because now Salieri won't have the opportunity to pass off the requiem as his own. It's not even done. Salieri was left alive and his legacy faded and Mozart's endured. As he's wheeled through the hall of the asylum at the end, Salieri declares himself to be the patron saint of mediocrities. The end. Now, where to begin? While plenty is invented for the film and the play it was based on, there are many surprising truths here also. Mozart died in December of 1791 at the age of 35. He had been ill for a while, but we don't know the exact cause. He was bedridden for the final two weeks of his life and did leave behind an unfinished requiem mass. The movie also shows his cloth-wrapped body being unceremoniously dumped into a mass grave, seemingly due to his poverty, but though that is accurate, this was just the custom in Vienna at the time. Let's reset to the beginning of Mozart's life, or actually let's start with his father, whom we do see in the film. Leopold Mozart was a composer and music teacher. You can still find his music and a textbook on the violin he wrote online today. Five of his seven children died in infancy. Only Wolfgang and his older sister Maria survived. Leopold, not surprisingly, made a point to educate his children in music. Later in life, Maria said of her brother, At the age of five, he was already composing little pieces, which he played to his father, who wrote them down. I think this makes the most sense as a way of getting our heads around stories of Mozart composing from such a young age. In the movie, Salieri talks about him writing a concerto at age four and a full opera at 12. The family traveled around Europe, showing off Wolfgang and his sister as child prodigies. So this would have been what we saw young Salieri in the audience for at the beginning. A likely invention of the movie to have Salieri present, but a nice touch. Eventually, Maria got left behind, and Mozart toured alone with their father. Similar to what we learned of Michelangelo, in his teens, Mozart was getting commissions to write operas. And in 1773, at the age of 17, Mozart was hired by the Prince Archbishop Colorado of Salzburg, whom we see him working for at the beginning of the film though we're not yet at the start of the movie. Mozart worked on and off for the Archbishop over the years and wasn't happy with the gig, which, again, is correctly demonstrated in the film. The film would seem to open in the early 1780s when Mozart is traveling with the Archbishop to Vienna to meet Emperor Joseph II, played by Jeffrey Jones in the film, probably best known as the principal in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. The film covers several years, but at one point fairly early on, Mozart tells someone that he's 26 years old, he turned 26 in 1782, so everything times out right. Mozart wrote to his father around this time and said he hoped to be able to stay in Vienna and work for the emperor. And similar to what they show in the movie, he was able to do just that, though also as shown in the movie, the work wasn't regular enough. The movie also oversimplifies his relationship with his wife, but again, out of necessity. In the film, Stanzi, a nickname for Constance, is simply his landlady's daughter, and they eventually marry and have one son. In truth, she was a member of a whole family Mozart got to know while in Mannheim, and he initially had his eyes on her older sister. The family later moved to Vienna for that sister's music career. When Mozart arrived in Vienna, he did rent a room from them, but was kicked out when he started courting Stanzi. 
They married in August of 1782 and had six children, though only two survived past infancy, still one more than we saw in the movie. One of Mozart's most famous operas, Don Giovanni, did open months after the death of Mozart's father, Leopold, as implied in the movie, though I couldn't find anything to match the movie's insistence on Mozart's fear and reverence of his father influencing the production. Mozart did indeed have money problems, and while he probably wasn't as obnoxious as depicted in the film, he does seem to have been irreverent and irresponsible while very hardworking at the same time. During the last three years of Mozart's life, Austria was at war with Turkey. The film completely ignores this, but it's part of what left all musicians in Vienna struggling for cash. Resources just weren't being allocated to the arts at the time. The movie also leaves out Mozart traveling around Germany and to Prague during this time for work, and that his financial situation was actually improving before he fell ill. Mozart's work was already held in high regard during his life, and an early death only elevated that. So, did you notice what was missing from Mozart's story? Salieri. That's basically the conceit of the whole movie. Salieri was a fellow composer in Vienna at the time of Mozart, but the rivalry, even if only in Salieri's head, is invented. He was very well respected, not as pedestrian as the film would lead us to believe. Indeed, Salieri was one himself who did new things as yet unseen in opera. He was a likely influence of Mozart's for Don Giovanni. His work just didn't have the staying power of Mozart's. Until, ironically, he got a bit of a resurgence from the release of the play and film Amadeus in the late 1970s and early 80s. During the timeline of the film, Salieri traveled frequently to Paris, and despite the movie implying that he was celibate, Salieri had a wife and child, though he outlived them both. After the death of his primary patron, the emperor, who actually died almost two years before Mozart, though it was left out of the movie entirely, Salieri's career declined. He still performed here and there and taught music. In fact, one of his pupils was a young Beethoven. There were rumors that Salieri may have poisoned Mozart, but those seemed to stem from general rivalries between the Italians and Germans at the time, and no one appears to take them seriously. Now, I want to close by discussing one more person, the Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II, who I've mentioned briefly a couple times. He has a supporting role throughout the movie, as a lot of the plotting of the musicians has to do with getting the emperor's permission or approval. We've talked about the Holy Roman Empire before, and it goes back to Charlemagne nearly a thousand years before. We can very roughly consider it Germany and Austria, but that will no doubt offend a lot of people. Today's movie takes place in what is now Austria. The Holy Roman Empire had no true capital city, just wherever the emperor decided to live. Joseph II, as did his father before him, chose Vienna. The events of Amadeus are actually predated by a sad story for the emperor. A couple decades before he employed Mozart, a 19-year-old Joseph, not yet emperor, married a princess with family ties to Spain and France. He loved her dearly, but pregnancy proved very difficult for her. The couple had one daughter, followed by a couple of miscarriages before his wife died from smallpox, while giving birth to a premature second daughter, who didn't survive either. The grief-stricken Joseph was content to live on without remarrying and doting on his young daughter, his father died a couple years after his wife and Joseph became Emperor Joseph II. He finally caved to the political pressure to remarry and try for a male heir. Though his new wife was enamored with him, Joseph couldn't be bothered to give her the time of day. He was still heartbroken from his first marriage. His second wife died of smallpox two years after they married. They had no children. 
A few years after that, his seven-year-old daughter died of pleurisy. Though not yet 30, Joseph, traumatized by his losses, refused to remarry. As a ruler, Joseph was a product of the Age of Enlightenment, a time in Europe where rational thought and the scientific method began to thrive. Joseph ruled arguably the most religiously tolerant kingdom in Europe. He still maintained absolute power, on paper anyway, but saw himself as a benevolent father, dictating that which he truly believed to be in the best interest of his people. He was known as the musical king and loved the arts. Another consequence of the Enlightenment is a populace with new ideas that challenge the status quo. And, leading us into next week, is a little nugget they slid into the film where Joseph mentions hearing how distressed and fearful his sister in France is. Joseph II's sister was Marie Antoinette. The French Revolution actually began two years before the death of Mozart. And that's what we'll begin to investigate next week with 2012's Farewell My Queen. <laughs> 